Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1. <coughs> Excuse me. And as you do, I'll remind you that we've spent time in John's prologue as he sets up and frames his gospel to us. And then starting last week, we left the prologue and began the witness of John. And I'll remind you that the action starts in verse 19 of chapter 1 with John being almost interrogated by a delegation sent to ask questions of him, figure out who he was, what he was doing, why he was doing it from the Jews in Jerusalem. We, we saw that they were not interested in the validity or invalidity, the, the, the lack of legitimacy of his ministry. When he identifies himself, I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 40. I'm the voice of one in the wilderness crying out, prepare a way for the Lord and that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. They, they don't really care. Well, then, then why are you baptizing, they ask. And he, he says to them a second time, don't, don't you get it? I'm baptizing with water. Look at, just see where things got left off. Verse 26, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me. The strap of whose sandal I'm unworthy to untie. If you didn't get it from the Isaiah 40 reference, he says, perhaps you'll get it when I tell you someone much, much greater than me is in your midst. And then the text ends. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And they were so close and yet so far. Well, we, the reader of the gospel, have stayed with John. And so this morning, as we look at this second day, the next day, verse 29, we will see one of the most brilliant encouraging, beautiful declarations of the identity of Jesus Christ in Scripture. In fact, it's so rich that I gave up attempts to get through this entire text. Really, the text is 29 to 34, and then you'll see 35 starts with the next day. We're not going to get through 34. Um, we're going to try to get through 31. And my plan is um, to really focus on that title, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this week. Um, and then try to finish the rest of this day up into the next day, uh, starting in verse 35 in the next message, because again, he does, declares in verse 36, behold, the Lamb of God. So rather than dealing with that title twice, rather deal with it once fully, and then when we get to the, um, verse 36, we can, we can move a little more quickly. So that's my plan. I'd like to begin by reading then John 1, 29 to 31, and then we'll ask the Lord for help and grace. The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. Lord God, we pray that John's purpose in coming would be true in us, that the Lord Jesus might be revealed for who he truly is to us also, that you might give us eyes of faith, ears that hear, that you would, if there are any hearts of stone, replace them with hearts of flesh, that we might see the glory of your Son, that we would not be like those sent to interrogate John who had no interest in such things, but that we might behold 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that we might worship. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at these three verses in three points. We begin with the context, we move to John's confession, and then John's clarification. So let's begin by looking at the context. The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him. Now, I mentioned this last week, but I want to take a moment to, to highlight for you that John gives us a tight chronology of what I believe to be seven days. There's some debate over that, but let me show them to you. Day one, or the, the first day we looked at last week, verse 19, the day when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And then, in verse 29, we get the next day. Day two. Verse 35, the next day. I believe there's another day at the end of 39 because two of John's disciples move from his circle of influence to go be with Jesus. And it says, so they came and saw where he was staying and stayed with him that day. So I think that ends the day. And I think verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother. He first, and we're looking at the next day. Um, and then in verse 43, we get the next day. Then look at chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day. So you could possibly count this out to be eight, or even possibly six. I tend to think it's seven. It's not critically important. But what is clear is John intentionally lines these things up as happening one after the other. Bam, bam, bam. And it's equally clear he lets go of the tight chronology after the wedding at Cana. Look at verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. And until we get to the Passion Week, until we get to Jesus hanging on the cross, we don't get any further tight chronological markers. John will mark off, now the Feast of the Jews is approaching, the Passover is approaching, but we never get a tight chronology like this week. I'll refer to it as a week. Um, although it's not critically important that it is. I tend to think it is. But it does raise a question, why is John highlighting this? To, to work backwards, in only one portion of his gospel is it important for John to communicate to us that these things happen sequentially and tightly. He, he makes the effort to do that. I, I'll encourage you to play Jeopardy with the Bible. By what I mean, ask the question, if John's including this in the text, what should I be asking this answers? What, what information depends on this tight chronology? Because John's not writing purposely, poorly. So if he wants us to know here and here only, these things happened in tight sequence, there must be a reason. So what, what possible reason could that be? That's, that's the way you should reason with the Bible. Um, why does the author write this? Why does he tell us this? Why is it important for me to know these things happen? Bam, 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 one after the other. I suggested to you two or three reasons last week, and I'll add one more this, this week, just quickly. One, John evidences an awareness of the synoptic gospels. He, he knows he's writing last. In, in John 4, he cites what possibly could be a direct citation of Matthew when, when he says Jesus himself had testified that a prophet is not... Um, welcome, except in his hometown. Nowhere in John's gospel does that saying of Jesus exist. It, it does exist in Matthew 17. And so John evidences an awareness of the other gospels. And so I think one of the reasons he lets us know this is to help us fit this in chronologically. Um, this takes place after Jesus' baptism, because John's going to reference it 
in the next verses that we're not going to look at this morning, and before his first miracle. So this takes place in a very narrow quarter of time after Jesus has been baptized, after he's gone into the wilderness where he's been tempted by the devil, and he returns, and these are apparently the, the things he does, the week he spends before going public with his first miracle. That, that's part of it. The second part, I think, is to continue to echo the allusions to the book of Genesis. Now, John very clearly begins echoing Genesis with John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, followed by the creation, light, and now we get a week, and then we get a marriage. That's following the pattern of Genesis. A third reason that we'll start to see in the coming weeks is just how quickly Jesus goes from unknown to rabbi with a group of disciples. What's significant about the first day? Why start your calendar week there? Because Jesus is present. We saw that last week. Among you stands one whom you don't know. So Jesus has been baptized. Jesus has been tempted. Jesus has returned. And he doesn't have notoriety yet. He's unknown. John knows who he is. And so Jesus is back. He's present. He's in the camp of John the Baptist. And starting the very next day, starting in our text today, John's going to start pointing to him, pointing to him. And then starting in the third day, we're going to see the movement start to go from John and his camp to Jesus, such that by chapter three, the last time we see John in lens, John's disciples are complaining. Teacher, he who you, who you baptized, everyone's going to him. And then John says, he must increase and I must decrease. So that's the movement we see. And Jesus goes from unknown to look at, look at chapter two. Verse 1 and 2, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Jesus goes from unknown to a rabbi with a band of traveling disciples in a week's time. And part of what that communicates is just how authenticating he is, how compelling he was. What we're going to see as he, he meets Andrew and Peter and Nathaniel is how quickly, how little time they need to spend with Jesus before the most profound declarations of his identity are coming out of their mouths. Look, look at Andrew in 41. We have found the Messiah. He spent an afternoon and an evening with Jesus. Then look down to verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. <laughs> That's a bold declaration. And then after a brief encounter with Jesus, Nathanael says in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. In other words, these disciples of John who'd been prepared for the coming Messiah through the baptism of repentance, when they met Jesus, it, they didn't take days and weeks and months to figure out, mm, what do I make of him? Rather, for these people who had already dealt with their sin, immediately Jesus was verified as authentic. He was compelling. So Jesus goes from unknown to a rabbi with a band of disciples being invited to a wedding in a week's time. And by chapter three, he's beginning to eclipse and outshine John the Baptist, which is something John the Baptist is rejoicing in, but his disciples are less certain about. So anyway, that, that's the week. When I reference this week, that's what I'm referencing. We're on day two. So context, the second day in John's week. The second day in John's week. Now, what's the significance of John seeing Jesus coming towards him? Two possible things. One, Jesus is not passive. 
He's active. He's beginning to move. But more importantly, I think, this links with that phrase, one is coming after me. One is coming after me. We saw it in verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. And then we saw it in 27. Uh, 26, John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me. And so the verbal connection of Jesus coming towards John, he's been telling us someone is coming after me, someone is coming after me, and here comes Jesus. I, th I think that's the, the clearest link. So the one coming after John was coming towards him. Jesus is now moved from he's here, but we don't know where, to there he is. And what does John do? He fulfills his ministry. And we now move to John's confession. John's confession. He boldly points to Jesus. I mean, and this is what's so tragic. If this delegation of Jews had stayed another day, I mean, perhaps some did, but they, they fade out of the narrative. They would get a clear answer of who this one is. And that's the beauty. We stay. They, they leave the scene. They exit stage right. We're still here. And so we see John unambiguously, boldly declaring who Jesus is. And John here gives us a second unique title for Jesus. We're going to get to the familiar ones, the Messiah, Rabbi, the prophet, the king of Israel. We, we saw that in the mouth of his disciples. But the first title in John's gospel is the word. And here we get one that I think is very familiar to us, but is equally still unique in the Bible. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yes, I think that as the early Christians meditated upon Jesus dying at Passover, Jesus being that sacrifice. I, I think this imagery is clear, but really there's only two other places outside of John where this connection is overtly made. 1 Corinthians 5, Christ our Passover lamb has suffered for us, and 1 Peter 1. And so this title, biblically, putting this all together tightly, is, is really new here even though I think it, it had permeated the church's early mind. And so let's look at this declaration in two parts. First, Jesus' identity, Jesus' identity, and Jesus' efficacy. Behold the Lamb of God, God's Lamb. Now this is rich in Old Testament texts. And especially by the time John had written this, after John the Baptist had declared this, after the other Gospels had been written, the connections would have been made. I'm not sure how much of this John the Baptist got, how much of this he understood, but I definitely think when John is writing his Gospel, a lot more of these links have been put together. So turn in your Bibles. We're going to look at three Old Testament texts. I think this draws from three passages. <clears throat> and the first is in Genesis 22. You see, what God has done in his Word is set up patterns, pictures, themes, which he develops to prepare us for the realities to come. And so it starts in Genesis. Before the giving of the law, God tested Abram. And after fulfilling his word and giving him a miracle child, he calls on Abraham to rise and sacrifice him. And Abraham shows us he is a man of faith. The text has already told us he believed God, but now the reader sees that faith. And he arose early, and he went to the mountain. Verse 5, Then Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife 
So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, to Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering, my son. I think that is the most direct verbal link in John the Baptist's title. Behold the Lamb of God. And Abraham saying God will provide for himself. God will have his own lamb. Now we know there's a ram caught in the thicket. But the connection here is even stronger given the fact that in Hebrews 11, you don't need to turn there, um, we, when we went through the prologue, the only begotten, what some of your translations say, only begotten, what I argued, it's probably better rendered unique or one of a kind. It's the same word Isaac is called in Hebrews 11. Let me, let me read to you to show you the connection. Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, his monogenes. So, John has already called Jesus. John the Gospel writer, John the Evangelist, has already called Jesus the monogenes, the unique one-of-a-kind son. And Hebrews makes it clear that's, that's an apt title for Isaac as well. Jesus is the monogenes. Jesus is the unique one-of-a-kind son. And so we see that in testing Abraham, God is setting up a pattern. Would this father offer up his son freely? Well, he would, and God didn't require it of him. But then we read in Romans 8, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? What Abraham does is pictures, what Abraham is willing to do, is pictures what God in fact does do for us. And Abraham's faith is seen in his bold declaration, God will provide for himself a lamb. More than a thousand years later, John the Baptist out in the Judean wilderness points at Jesus coming towards him and says, behold, God's lamb. I think the early church meditating on this would have, would have made those connections. So first, the lamb God provided. The lamb God provided. That's the first picture of a lamb as a sacrifice and a lamb in place of a firstborn special son. But of course... The connection with firstborn sons and lambs doesn't stop there. Turn to Exodus 12. We get the first Passover. And again, for anyone who's read this gospel, for anyone who knows the story already knows that it's precisely during the high feast day of the Passover celebration that Jesus was crucified. They would know already that, that Jesus' death on the cross was tied in with Passover. But in the very first Passover, you remember God had given judgments and plagues to Pharaoh and to Egypt. And Pharaoh would relent temporarily and then recant and relent and recant. And so finally, the Lord brings this final judgment. Interestingly, some of the plagues just affected Egypt. It must have been remarkable for only Egypt to be dark and yet the Israelites' area being light. But this is one of the plagues that affected them all. The Israelites also had to put the blood on the doorposts. The Israelites, in other words, were in no better standing than the Egyptians for this plague. And the Lord told them how they would survive, how death would pass over them, how they would avoid his judgment. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. 
It should be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb. According to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbors shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each one can eat, and shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs. So it's prescribed that every household has the same offering. Some of the, some of the sacrificial offerings, you could do something smaller if you were poor. Here, it has to be a lamb. You can just pool. Smaller families can pool together to buy a lamb together. And then you bring the lamb into the house. And by implication, the lamb becomes dear to you. I think it's clear God wants the Israelites when they kill the lamb. By the way, the priest doesn't kill the lamb. The Israelites do. The priest oversees it. This lamb has been in your home. Your kids have probably made a name for. You're going to watch shudder and bleed out. You don't get to be remote and distanced. It's right there. Your hand on the back of its neck, violently showing the guilt of our sin and what is required for God to pass over in judgment. And so every year after this, Israel would, would provide a Passover. It's at the Passover celebration that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And so when John says, behold, the Lamb of God, this, this theme of a lamb connecting the unique son starts with Genesis, with Abram and Isaac. And now a lamb protects a firstborn son for those who put the blood over the lentil posts. And so we see that Jesus is the true and final Passover lamb. That connection would equally be clear to those, especially who've already heard the story, who've read the gospel, the connection of Jesus dying during this Passover, all of this pointing towards him. Here is the ultimate, final, true Passover. This is why we don't kill lambs at Passover anymore, because it is finished. It is done. God's lamb has been sacrificed for us. And so the shadow is done away with. There's one other reference to a lamb, I think, also, that, that validly fits. Turn to Isaiah 53. This is partly why I, I carved on this. I think it's such a rich topic and theme and such a wonderful title for the Lord Jesus. It begins with Abram and Isaac. It's instilled and ensconced in Israel's worship year after year, the Passover celebration. And then, and don't forget, John the Baptist has identified himself as the messenger, the, the, the voice of Isaiah 40. Well, a few chapters later in Isaiah, we find another one. You're blank here, the suffering servant. I'll actually start in 52.13. I'll just, we'll just read this section. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouth because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understood. Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. This suffering servant, bearing the guilt of many, crushed for our sins, is like a lamb led to the slaughter. Behold, the Lamb of God. I, I think the clearest connection in John's title is to Genesis 22. But then the, the rest of the Old Testament develops this theme, brings this theme forward, where every year every Israelite family has a lamb and they bring it into their home. And then as a reminder that the price for God's wrath passing over them is that another has to die, a lamb must die. And then the promised coming Messiah, God's suffering servant, who would die for the sins of his people, oh, he is likened to a lamb. Oh yeah, I, I think that's intentional. And all that coming together when John points to Jesus coming towards him, behold the Lamb of God. Now, let's look at the second half of that confession. Who takes away the sin of the world? And I think that confirms what we've just seen, even in Isaiah, this notion that this lamb is not just a pretty lamb. What about a lamb is in view? It's the lamb as a sacrifice. The lamb as an object of appeasement for wrath. A lamb who removes sin and anger. Jesus' efficacy. He is, point one, the sacrifice that removes the guilt of sin. The sacrifice that removes the guilt of sin. That's what the Passover sacrifice was meant to do, but it happened year after year. For a lamb truly could not atone for the sins of the people not in any lasting way. And yet God's lamb would once and for all take away the sins of the world. This also ties into um, what was said in John 1.14, if you're back in John, where John tells us that we beheld his glory. Glory is from the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I argued when we looked at that passage, and we looked at also verse 17, that grace and truth is really a reference back to God's revelation of himself at Mount Sinai. When Moses goes up and says, show me your glory. And God says, you can't see all my glory, but I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll walk by, and I'll declare to you my name. And we learn that God's name, God's glory, at least what Moses can receive, is this. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, 
forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, who, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And those, those Hebrew words, chesed, God's covenant, loyal, faithful love, could easily be translated as grace. And his emer, his faithfulness, his fidelity, could easily be his truthfulness, grace and truth. And so, given then that God's glory is seen in these two edges, these two wings, on the one hand, I am abounding in steadfast love, he says, and I forgive sins generationally. That's my glory. It's also my glory that I am faithful and I punish iniquity. I don't let guilty people go free. And I think that tension, well, how does that work, is to some degree left hanging. God says, here's my glory. I'm just an overflowing fountain of grace. I just forgive people and their kids. And they're kids, but also I don't let guilty people go free. That's God's glory. Well, in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we see both of those truths absolutely real. On the cross where Jesus, as God's Lamb, suffers for our sins, takes upon himself our guilt, do we not marvel at that grace? Do we not amen that he is abounding in steadfast love? But when God also says, I, I don't look the other way at sin. I don't leave sin unpunished. I don't deal with it lightly. We look at the cross and we say, amen. Is he not faithful? Is he not righteous and just? So in being the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it reveals God's glorious grace and reveals God's faithfulness to punish sin. Notice also the last phrase here, who takes away the sin of the world. And again, we can so assume that, that we, we need to pause and consider what a radical concept this is. It's not the sin of the world, meaning every single last person. John's going to tell us in chapter 3, if you don't believe in Jesus, God's wrath abides on you. Rather, not just for the Jews, but for all peoples. Not just for the Jews, but for all peoples. Turn to, turn to John 11. Let me, let me show you why I think this is clearly what John means. Um, John 11, starting in 40, let's start in 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what shall we do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So there's that picture. It's not just for Israel, not just for the nation of Israel, but for all of God's people scattered abroad. This also gives us a category for understanding how John could say this. John here in John chapter 1, John the Baptist has an incredibly high and developed view of who Jesus was. I mean, if you compare this to the Gospels, right, it takes to Luke 9 before Peter says, who are you? You're, we've come to believe you're the Messiah. 
And yet, even as he declares that, he tells Jesus, oh, no, 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 you'll never die. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. So in Luke's gospel, Peter gets the right answer. Doesn't really understand what he's saying, but he gets the right answer by chapter 9. We also know that John the Baptist gets arrested. Luke tells us this, and we saw this in our study of Luke. And he begins to doubt and become despondent. And he sends messengers from prison to Jesus saying, are you the promised one or should we look for another? And so seeing that, some scholars have suggested there's no way John the Baptist said this. This is clearly added in after the fact. This is evidence of the Arian controversy or something. Well, John just gave us a category in chapter 11 for somebody speaking better than they knew. John's a prophet. Prophets have God's spirit upon them. So it's entirely possible, first, that John does have a high view of Jesus. Have, have you never, have you not been in the place in one day in your life where you boldly believed and confessed God's truth only months later in discouragement to wrestle with unbelief and doubt? Why, why couldn't it be that at this moment John is strong in faith, strong in his understanding, and after sitting in prison and not understanding for months, he, he began to doubt? That's possible. It's also possible that John spoke better than he knew, that being a prophet of God, he speaks God's words, he speaks rightly, but he doesn't fully fathom what he's saying, just like the high priest doesn't fully understand what he's saying. Either way, and there's plenty of explanation to, to account for John's developed Christology here, even given the other gospel's weakness later in his life. So now we move quickly to John's clarification, John's clarification. He points out Jesus, behold the Lamb of God, God's Lamb. And what will he do? He will take away the sins of the world. Bear, bear that in mind. Jesus does many other things. He shows an example of God's love. He comes to set up a kingdom where justice and righteousness reign. But understand, first and foremost, what he comes to do is, is bear sin, to suffer and die like a lamb. This is why his enfleshment, his incarnation was necessary. And so I, I believe in, in all those other glorious realities, Christus, Victor, and all these other, but understand first and foremost, he is our substitute, bearing the punishment of our guilt and our sin. This is the only means by which our sins can be taken away. So John gives his clarification, then John's clarification first. We'll move quickly, Jesus' preeminence, Jesus' preeminence. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranked before me because he was before me. It's now the third time we've heard this phrase. You get the idea that this was something John repeated many times. John even here isn't saying it for the first time. He's referencing, you, you all have heard me say this. John, the gospel writer, has told us he said this. And so this notion of Jesus' preeminence was a frequent note of John the Baptist. John had been announcing Jesus' arrival, which is completely consistent with who and what he said he was. Remember, they asked him, who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you the Christ? He says, no, no. Well, then who are you? He said, I'm the voice of one in the wilderness crying, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the desert and the desert a highway for our God. Every valley should be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's who John said, I am, and that's what he's doing. He's preparing. 
He's preparing people for someone greater. He's the vanguard, the advanced team for the living God coming to earth. That's what Isaiah says. And so, of course, John says, I was telling you, it's not about me. I'm not the show. One's coming after me who's greater than me. And even though in Jewish thought, the, the predecessor is greater than the one who comes after, John says, not in this case. In this case, the one who comes after me is greater than me. And he links Jesus' greatness in his preexistence. Jesus was greater because he was preexistent. John has a very high developed view of Jesus. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he is greater than John precisely because he is preexistent. Before John was, Jesus was, even though he arrives on the scene later, okay? Next, John announces his ignorance. I myself did not know him. Um, now, again, some people have speculated, how could John say that? After all, Jesus and John are cousins, and their mothers were friends, and we have that account in Luke. Well, Luke also tells us in Luke chapter 1, 76 through 80, the, um, the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. So it's entirely possible John the Baptist never laid eyes on his cousin until that fateful day at the Jordan. That's possible. But I don't think that's fundamentally what he's saying. I, I, it's entirely possibly true that John was out in the wilderness until his appearing as a prophet. But I think in John 1, what's being linked as knowing is, goes more than that. I, I think he's saying something like, I didn't recognize his identity. Go all the way back to 1, chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Well, clearly there is the world didn't recognize him as its creator, as its author. Um, and I think what John is saying and the clarification he gives in the following verses that we'll look at next time we study this is I didn't get his identity. What was it he didn't know about Jesus? Because he says it again. Verse 32, John, in chapter 1, John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. I didn't know he was a Son of God. I didn't know he was the one who had baptized the Holy Spirit. It's getting back to whose Jesus' identity was. And so what John is saying here, here's your blanks, John is not claiming never to have seen Jesus. It's entirely possible that he never had previously seen Jesus, but that's not, I think, what he's saying. Rather, he's saying he did not know who Jesus truly was. That his insight is due to revelation, which again fits with him making this bold confession. It's not that John is smart enough to fit the pieces together. He's taking no credit for his knowledge of who Jesus is. The one who sent me to baptize told me. The one who sent me to baptize told me who he was. So John is dependent on revelation to understand who Jesus was, um, which gets finally to John's purpose. And again, here, he starts to answer the question of the Jews. Why are you baptizing? Well, he's going to partly tell us. For this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John's purpose. First, just notice that John was sent by God to baptize with water. 
That's clearly implied here. John didn't take it into his own head to become a prophet. It wasn't his idea. He is a commissioned, sent prophet, which links with chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God. Well, that's John's understanding of himself as well. Why is he baptizing with water? Because God sent me to do that, he could have said. John was sent by God to baptize with water. But that purpose of that baptism was to prepare for something else. It was that Jesus might be revealed. That Jesus might be revealed. Now, what's interesting here is there's another purpose statement for John the Baptist in his ministry. Is um, in verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So John has just told us, John the evangelist, John the gospel writer, why did God send John the Baptist? He sent John the Baptist that all might believe through him. John the Baptist says, I was sent so that I might reveal the Christ. To which you could say, okay, well, which one is it, John? I suppose which John you're talking to, I suppose. It gets confusing. Um, but did he come that people might believe or he might be revealed? And again, this, this connects with John's notion of faith. The world didn't know him. You can't receive and believe on Jesus rightly till you see him and understand him for who he is. In other words, a revelation of God, God revealing the identity of his son. Or as Jesus elsewhere says, eyes that see and ears that hear. Or as he tells Nicodemus in chapter 3, you must be born again to even see the kingdom is necessary, a precursor to faith. You can't entrust yourself to him you don't see and understand. So John's coming and calling people to repentance and to a baptism, confessing their sins, is enabling them to see Jesus rightly. Or to put it another way, those who are convicted of their sins, those who, who grieve and recognize their guilt are in the best position possible to see the glory of Jesus John the Baptist came calling on people to a baptism of repentance to reveal Jesus. He came so that all might believe through him. And then finally, the last two points, that Jesus might be revealed. Now, John says to Israel, and that makes sense. Um, Jesus elsewhere says it's not good to give the children's meat to the dogs. And John the Baptist didn't rove around, roam around the, the Mediterranean like Paul did. He stayed locally. He, he was sent as a witness to Israel. As, as Luke chapter 1, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. But even as John says, I'm sent to Israel, we reading the gospel, I mean, I'm guessing most people in this room are Gentiles, part of the goyim, the world. Maybe there's some genetic Jews in here, but most of us, I think, are the Gentiles. And is not John witnessing to us? Is not John the baptizer revealing Jesus to us? He's already just said that Jesus is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And through the inscripturating of John's witness, John is not simply a witness to Israel, but to the world. Turn finally to Revelation 5. There's one more text that sees Jesus as a lamb that I thought was worthy of looking at. We're going to have our offering in just a moment, and then after our offering, we're going to have our closing song. And our closing song is going to link with Revelation 5. Such a rich theme, I thought worthy of slowing down and considering Jesus as the lamb of God. Revelation chapter 5. 
Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw, what, is, what does the lion of the tribe of Judah look like? I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to open the scroll, take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, not just for Israel, but for the world. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Behold, the lamb of God. I'm gonna call the ushers forward. Let's have a word of prayer as we prepare for our offering. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes of faith that we might behold the Lamb um, for who he is, not simply a wise teacher, not simply a compassionate prophet, but as the Lamb you provided for our sin, the only recourse that we have that our sins might be taken away. May he be revealed in our hearts that we might believe. And by believing, we have life in his name. In Jesus' name, amen.